full disclosure, I got two kids. Both of them just recently graduated from high school, so I no longer have to worry about wiping noses and making sure that they get to school on time. But I do know that it is one of those times right about now where you're starting to think, okay, budget, can I get their school books? Can I get their new pair of jeans and a new pair of sneakers for them? What are they going to be walking back into in a couple of weeks? Because there is no doubt that all these kids are starting to get a little long in the tooth from summer and are actually looking forward to getting back to school and seeing some of their friends. Not every kid, but a majority of them. The question that we have today for you is what improvements, quote unquote, would you right now, driving around, expect from your kids' school to have prepared for them when they return in a few weeks' time? And the reason that we bring this topic up is obviously we're thinking about the potential for a flu season that comes up in the fall. So why don't we just try now and work ahead? We've seen what the last couple of years have been like. We understand the frustration that can come when all of a sudden you got to keep your kids from home. And then you've got to call in sick from your job or get a babysitter or call on your aunt, your grandmother, whoever. The reality is, is there's things that can be done right now to make sure that we can minimize the impact of what is for sure going to be an upcoming flu season. Some of the things that I would say, as again, we open up the calls to you at 604-280-9898, is I've got to imagine that there's going to be further education for students and for staff on the steps that are needed to prevent things like transmission. That's a no-brainer. You can put up the, you know, pamphlets, you can put up the posters, you can do the daily roll calls, uh, the student announcements, you can put up additional places where you can disinfect your hands, you can do all those things. That is, at this point, in 2023, a no-brainer. But the other things that I think you're going to take into consideration that I would expect are being done behind the scenes right now, the adjusting of classroom activities, the limiting of shared resources, the cleaning and the sanitization by both students and support staff, actually where the support staff is far overlooked. The janitors, all of the people that work in the cafeterias for high schools that have said cafeterias, there are so many support staff right now that are probably trying to work ahead to make sure that they've got all those stations prepared, that they've got the social seating in place to make sure that everything's aligned so that when these kids, whether they're coming back for kindergarten or for grade 12, um, are all ready to go. Here's the challenge, and this is where it starts to get a little polarizing. It's real easy to disinfect your hands. It's easy to make sure that the seats are a little further apart than they used to be. The other things that you're going to hear from some parents that maybe you won't get from others is the implementation of screening. It, I, I, face masks, I'm not even going to get into because I guarantee I could take a whole hour on calls just on face masks alone. You're going to have the people that agree with them, the people that don't agree with them. My two cents on that is if you want to wear a mask, you're more than welcome to. And if you don't, if you're not going to, I can't stop you. But the reality is, is if I want to, I shouldn't be chastised for that. But I think screening is going to be a really interesting one in this year because you're going to have the people that want to make sure that that is happening in schools, but you're going to have the others that are going to be like, hey, we've been through this enough. We don't want to deal with this again. And again, I'd love to hear from you on this 604-331-2899 in the buzz line. Would you be upset if your school or your children's school 
wanted to implement a screening process so that they could at least know what they're walking into each week. For example, every Monday, your kids come back from the weekend and there's a, a testing in place or there's a protocol that the kids have to go through, whether it's making sure that they've disinfected their hands before they step into a classroom or making sure that they have at least gone through some checklist to make sure that they're trying to minimize the potential impact to flu, COVID, all the usual suspects when it comes to the fall season. And the other one that's curious is the continuation of social distancing in certain settings. This one was actually brought up by one of my kids the other day when they said, you know what, what about gym class? What about these uh, grade three? Remember in grade three, was it grade three or grade four? When you had to do the uh, square dancing, all of a sudden you were hooking up with the girl for the first time or the guy for the first time and you all giggled and you're all blushing. That kind of social contact, the sharing of books, the sharing of computer stations, the sharing of everything is definitely going to be something that is now under review. And again, I think for the last two years, we've always been reactive Whereas this off year, I feel like there's an opportunity to be proactive. So I'm curious to know what is happening in our schools right now. So the question that I have for you before we go to the break, we'll take a break here. And again, I, my phones are always open. You know how I do this show. Whenever I fill in, my show is always open to you. But the question that I have as we go to break, is it too much to ask our schools or the daycares to go ahead right now and take extra precautions heading into the school year? Or should these expectations just already be met without any fanfare that has accompanied them in the years past? Is it too much to ask our schools or the daycares if it is, uh, can we ask them to take extra precautions heading into the school year when it comes to making sure that the social distancing is there, that we've got all the stations in place to make sure that we can uh, keep their hands nice and clean and that we are ready to go so that we don't have a very busy and miserable fall when it comes to COVID, when it comes to um, the flu and, and the common cold and all these things that we know are coming and now we should be ready for. All right, let's go to the calls. Uh, we're going to start in Abbotsford. Dave and Mary hold the lines. Sharon, thank you. You are a, a teacher. Walk me through this. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Hi. Your thoughts on how how much we should expect from our schools when it comes to being ready for this coming year? Um, I think some teachers uh, really go out of their way, um, but it's not a consistent thing across the board. It really depends on how supported you are with administration and families. Um, yeah, it's it's just like I said, inconsistent. And some people just will regularly say, well, COVID's over. Well, COVID's over. But even the general colds and flus and things aren't typically um, uh, prevented. There's still kids sharing supplies. They sit close together. They play close together. Um, very few wear masks. All right, Sharon, thank you for the call. You know, one thing that I will say is I do feel like there's a little bit of a double standard. For example, when our kids are sick, we have a tendency more often than not to send them to school unless they're really sick. Whereas if I'm sick or, you know, a, a person that's an adult and is trying to squeeze through to make sure that they can make ends meet and get that extra eight hours of pay, we'll find our way to work. So sometimes I think there's a bit of double standard there. Dave in Port Coquitlam, thank you for waiting. You are a teacher as well. Good afternoon, Dave. Your thoughts? Good afternoon. Um, I kind of want to echo what the last caller just said. It's really imperative that parents don't send kids that are even a little bit sick into school. If you remember last year, there were stories all over the news about there weren't enough teachers and there weren't uh, enough TOCs or substitute teachers to cover classes that didn't have their regular teachers in because they were sick. 
and it's like um, it's a cycle. If if the teacher gets sick and or the kids come sick and the teacher gets sick, then it just propagates through the school, and before you know it, the school's missing eight or ten teachers, and then the principals are in the classrooms, and the resource teachers are pulled out of the resource room, and the librarians are pulled out of the library, and before you know it, um, kids aren't getting the support that they need, and that's a detriment to everyone. Well, Dave, let me ask you this, and I'm not going to push back, but I'm just curious to know, because this has always been a recipe that's as old as the, you know, the, the school itself, but we've learned a lot in the last couple of years about social distancing and the implementation of masks and all those kind of things. What are some of the things that you just think that schools now have to do as opposed to opt to do? Well, I think that um, it's really imperative that the school districts make sure that the ventilation in the buildings is adequate. And I know that that's something that still isn't the case throughout a lot of the province. So just because the government says they spent um, millions and millions of dollars on fixing uh, HVAC doesn't necessarily mean that that's the case. Um, So, you know, a kid coming and washing their hands and social distancing is fine, but viruses travel through the air. And the only way to prevent uh, getting the virus is to make sure the air is clean or people are masking. And I know that there's a lot of reluctance uh, for people to mask, but if we're serious about things, Uh, Maybe that's something that needs to be taken uh, a closer look at. In Japan, people seem to be able to mask in cold and flu season, whether they're sick or not. So, I mean, I know that's controversial, but if we want to make sure that kids get the services that they need in schools, that all of the teachers are there, and that includes library uh, resource teachers and all of those, and they're often pulled out of those important positions to cover classes when teachers are away. I hear you. Dave, some interesting thoughts. I do appreciate it. And we'll break those down over the course of the show. Um, I want to go over to the island very quickly. One more call, and then we'll start to dissect all this great information that you're adding to the show. Mary from the island, you want to talk about shade and portable cooling units. Uh, I do. I I think the kids are going to go back, and it's going to be very, very hot. And as uh, Dave before me just said, uh, you want to prevent the spread or whatever of a virus. Well, then you want to be outside. Well, there should be portable tenting systems set up because most schools do not have very much shade. And also the portables are going to be, kids will be frying, absolutely frying in portables. Yeah, and you know so what's interesting? And gotta... uh, shade outside is going to be uh, really important. Yeah, Mary, thank you for that. I'm sorry I stepped on your toes there. Um, I live close to a school that just added a handful of portables, and I can only imagine those are going to be cooking at least for the first weeks of uh, the 2023 campaign. Here's my thoughts on this, and I don't think we're ever going to be able to go back to a full mask process. I know that Dave was mentioning the fact that in Japan there are certain students that will wear masks, uh, especially in the fall season, and that it's just a little bit more of the norm when it comes to different societies. I don't think that's going to happen here, uh, and I don't think it will ever be mandated again. I think that the you know provincial health officer and everybody in that regard, Adrian Dixon Company, are never going to have to go down that rabbit hole again if they don't absolutely have to. Um, But I think there is a proactive expectation of our schools as to what they can do. But there also has to be the responsibility of you and I, you know, when we send our kids to these schools and what are we doing? So things that I would say, I I don't want to just be the guy that brings you the problem. I like to also try every once in a while to bring you be the guy that brings you the solution. 
send your kid to school with some hand sanitizer, those little things that you can attach to the bag or some wet wipes so that at least when they go into the classroom, they can wipe their desk. For example, if they're, you know, in a couple of different classrooms over the course of the day, unless the school is going to provide those options to the students where every day you get a little kit where you can wipe down your kind of like when you go to the gym and you wipe down your unit before you utilize it. Um, those are things that I think we can expect from our schools. And I think that's money well spent by the government is make sure that you give these kids and the students and the teachers and the support staff the tools that they need to at least disinfect their immediate area around them. We can't save the world. Nobody's going to wear these masks again. But if we can at least arm our students with a protocol and a system in place that when you sit down at your desk before the teacher starts instructing the class, here's what you've got to do. You got to disinfect your chair. You got to disinfect your desk. You got to make sure that your hands are clean that's a start. If you're sick, don't go to school. There's got to be a social option for you to be able to pick up those things that you lost in class, be it a note available online, uh, some of the notes from the class available online. You got to work together because in 2023, this is just the world that we're living in now. And it's unfortunate, but at least we've got the opportunity here in a couple of weeks to at least get ready before these kids come rumbling back to school, ready to rock and roll. You know, just uh, speaking of a long time, it's been just over a month. Great segue, by the way. Just over a month since the uh, strike started between SAG and AFTRA, the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. And this obviously has an effect in a big, big way on BC's film industry. To break it down and to give us an update on what's going on, the BC Minister of Tourism for Arts, Culture and Sport, Lana Popham, kind enough to join me. Lana, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's my pleasure. And I know that there's some rumblings going on, everybody wanting to get back to the table. But where are we at right now when it comes to our industry on this side of the border? Sure. Well, we are feeling a bit hopeful because there are discussions happening at the bargaining table. And that's good. That could be, I mean, if there wasn't anything, any rumblings or any talking going on right now, we'd be even more worried. But there are, there are at the table and they're trying to work through things, but we're not there yet. So, yeah, it's not a great time, and it is affecting the industry here in British Columbia. Um, it takes a while, I think, for consumers of these wonderful productions uh, to notice an interruption like that, because, of course, this would be the time of year that things would be filmed and created, created and then we would see them later on. So if things don't get better, we as consumers are definitely going to start to see uh, the results of what's happening right now. But I can tell you, um, just so people have uh, numbers in their, in their minds of what's happening, at this time we have five active productions going on in BC, and at this time last year we had 50 so that's a major wow. reduction. Yes. Um, IATSE, which is the union that represents many of the workers, they have 10,000 uh, members working in the industry. 400 of those members are working right now. So those are it's, jarring it's numbers, major. Lana. Yeah. Yeah, it's that's jarring. a big deal. So beyond actors, because I think one of the things, Lana, that I sometimes try to wrap my head around is just the, the secondary application to this because it's not just the actor or the actress i mean we're talking about catering trucks we're talking about production trucks we're talking about thousands of bc residents that right now are out of work can you maybe shine some color onto just who these people are right now that have gone through this past month without work 
Sure. And so when you said thousands of workers, you're exactly right. It's 88,000 workers are associated with this industry. So it's huge. Um, the, per, the production spend when everything's going well is about $3.6 billion. So it's huge. Um, we see uh, every part of the industry right now coming to a standstill. And you're right, there's, uh, there's many types of businesses that support this industry. So catering, of course. But when we talk about catering, let's go in a step farther. The farmers that provide the food for those catering, catering trucks, we've got the, um, the hairdressing industry, carpenters, we have uh, the people that sew costumes. It's, it's an enormous amount of trades that are usually incorporated into the, the successful industry here in BC. And so, you know, I, we're worried because we know that it's been dragging on quite some time now. And we have heard that people are, are starting to really have their lives impacted, can't pay the rent, you know, we already know that groceries are expensive right now, so th their lives are being affected. There's really good um, leadership with the unions, of course, and they're being uh, they're making some relief payments accessible to some of these workers. But uh, all in all, it's not a good situation. We also know that the Emmys have been postponed until January. Uh, and that's, as I was saying at the beginning, that's when consumers of these great, this great industry are, are going to really be noticing a difference. And so we all have to keep our fingers crossed right now. There's not really anything we can do. Uh, as government, uh, right, we have to just watch the what, watch what plays out at the bargaining table. But we can certainly send good energy their way. Well, Lana, let me ask you when it comes to solutions, because obviously when this finally gets resolved, everybody's going to go back and say, OK, well, how much did we lose? And then they're going to say, OK, well, what productions can we continue and what productions are we going to have to just leave on the editing room floor, for lack of a better phrase? Is there something that this province can do to maybe entice some of those companies south of the border to say, hey, even though we have to reduce the number of things we're doing, we still want to go to B.C.? Well, I think BC is one of the top places uh, the industry wants to be. So we don't have a problem attracting um, uh, business here. And, you know, we've done, there's a lot of things that, that we've done that uh, make the industry quite happy. We have a tax credit, for example, that's been running for quite some time. So it's also, we have the locations that these these companies want. So we, we're in a really, really good place to uh, see things pick back up immediately probably once this once the talks resolve themselves and so I'm not really worried about that but one of the things that we can do is continually incent domestic productions to keep happening and so we actually put forward quite a, a uh, amount of money uh, in this last budget to specifically incent domestic productions to happen. That means uh, all of the skill sets that go with domestic productions. And so that's a way of, of creating some resiliency when issues like this arise. We're lucky because they don't arise that often, but it's always good to have a stronger domestic industry anyway. And so we'll keep doing that regardless. And there are domestic productions that are under production right now because they aren't affected by by some of the stuff that's going on on, on the other side of the, the border. 
Absolutely. Well, let's use this calm in the storm to hopefully keep optimistic and make sure that once the floodgates do open, that they can keep coming to this side of the border. Lana, thank you for this conversation. I know it was brief, short and sweet, but you gave us a lot to chew on. And thank you for that this afternoon. Thanks for having me on. We'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. I hope so. Thank you. Lana Popham, BC's Minister for Tourism, Arts, Culture and Sports, stopping by. Yeah, I, I think you've got to make sure that once everything finally gets going again, that you're waving those big flags saying, hey, by the way, we still want that business up here because there are going to be some things that do get cut. It's amazing. She mentioned that there used to be 50 productions going on in BC, and right now there's currently only five. Like That's significant. I guess it was what, last night, late last night, Donald Trump and his fourth, his fourth, not his first, not his second, not his third. It is fourth indictment. He's now got the U.S. looking in to see what is going to happen with their former U.S. president. The interesting thing is it's not just the United States who seems to be fixated on the life and times of Donald Trump. It is also something that is an obsession here in Canada. The stakes are always going to be high. And this actually started back in 2016, not just because of The Apprentice, the TV show that featured the then well, soon to be president. But when he was taking on Hillary Clinton, everybody in Canada said it can't be. Surely Donald Trump is not going to become the 45th president of the United States. And then we woke up one morning and the Donald was, in fact, the president. So fast forward nearly eight calendar years, and here we are again still fixated on Donald Trump. So here's a question that I have for you this afternoon, and I would love to hear from you. 604-280-9898, 604-280-9898, or hit me up on the buzz line, 604-331-2899, if you just want to leave a message there. Are you still looking in on Donald Trump's life and times as you did even a couple of years ago? Are you looking for resolution? And why is it that we as Canadians are so infatuated with the life and times of Donald Trump? And you think I might be joking, but according to Google Trends, and this isn't just something from the past week or the past month, this has been going on for five to six years now. Canada is second only to the U.S. when it comes to interest in Donald Trump on social media platforms. He has more interest than Justin Trudeau. And in October of last year, he had more interest when it comes to Google Trends than the words sex or hockey on Google in Canada. So if you think that I'm making this stuff up, those are the real analytic. And it is an amazing moment in time right now where we're looking to see if the former president He's actually going to have one of these indictments come down on him. And whether it's jail time, whether it's his inability to run for the presidency again, there are so many things that are going on. But this one that just came down last night, which, of course, maybe some of you guys have heard about. Some of you guys are still just trying to wrap your head around. Um, he's going to go against it as well. He's still got this rhetoric that says he's, you know, he's the victim. Mark Meadows is in this one. Rudy Giuliani is in this one. He's got all of his inner circle also on these indictments right now. Ten of them, if you're counting. And this one is in Georgia. Now, this is not a federal indictment. This is a state indictment. So it comes with a bit of different set of circumstances. And you've got a lot of the naysayers saying that this surely has to be the knockout punch. But I think this is a part of the reason that we as Canadians are so infatuated with Donald Trump. 
there are so many knockout punches that have been thrown at the Donald over the last couple of months, ever since, you know, January the 6th, the insurrection, and he still gets up off the mat. I mean, whether it was the first indictment, the second, the third, whether it was all the things that were coming out with uh, just a number of different things from the media, he turns it at the media. He turns it at the naysayers and he says, no, 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 this isn't about me. This is about you. And the interesting part is Canadians cannot seem to take their eyes off of this chaos that is going on south of the states. Now, there might be a little bit more to it because obviously, and I think... And, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, and I'm always open to conversation on this. I think a part of the reason that we watch with such infatuation isn't just because of Donald Trump. I think there's a sobering moment when it comes to being a Canadian to realize that what happens down there definitely has an impact on what happens in our country. And I think we realize at times that there's just so much at stake and so much impact that actually could happen to us. And yet we have so little to say over this that whether it's 2016, whether it's articles from years ago, whether it's articles from months ago, weeks ago, days ago, hours ago, we're looking for any information that we can get to find out what is the impact going to be on us. And that's, I think, a part of the reason that we watch. I mean, you can talk to political scientists, you can talk to television execs, you can talk to politicians, and they'll all say the same thing. You just can't stop looking at Donald Trump and this crazy path. Now, the other thing that I've noticed is that sometimes when it comes to the way that we address our politicians and our politic and at times our media is very similar. We've seen now the the fake news, the way that people portray the media and the way that people handle certain situations when it comes to information and the way that it's processed and the way that it gets to your phone or to your iPad or to whatever device you use. And it used to be where nobody would ever challenge somebody like the media. The media was essentially for many years, the, the final word, but now because there's this politician who's big and brash and bold and not always right, but at least he's not afraid to, swing a stick out there and say, this is my thought, you're starting to see that trend happen on this side of the border when it comes to politics. I mean, I think even in the last couple of years, you think of what's gone on in the um, elections in Alberta and the way that Doug Ford conducts himself in Ontario at times. He's got a little Trumpism in him. And even the way that Pierre Poliev and Justin Trudeau go back and forth at each other. There are certain ways that you can take what we've seen from the United States over the last couple of years and say, you know what, that conversation or that method wouldn't have happened a decade ago. But now that we've seen the impact that it has and the way that it can galvanize certain parts of our demographic, heck yeah, we're going to get on that train. And heck yeah, we're going to use that to our advantage. But the reality is, and this is still why the news is the way that it is, is nobody, whether it's in the United States or here in Canada, is able to take their eyes off the prize. And that is the 45th president of the United States, Donald Trump, who again yesterday was indicted for a fourth, fourth time. And he's still ranting and raving, saying he's not going down without a fight. And I think there's a part of Canadians and Canadiana that actually uh, is a fan of that, if you could believe it or not. What are your thoughts on this? I'd love to hear from you. Are you looking in on the Donald Trump indictments? Does that even resonate to you or you just got too much stuff going on at home? And a question that was asked to me by my neighbor just the other day that I would love to have a conversation with you on. The Canadian flag. What does it mean to you in 2023? 
does it still, when you look at it, does it still mean the same thing that it did five years ago? So the Donald Trump scenario, fourth indictment south of the border, and yet Canadians seem just as infatuated with the story as Americans. I'm going to go right to the phones, right out of the gates, because we got a lot of calls to get to. Mike from Langley, your first thoughts uh, have to do with the media. Good afternoon. They do. Um, good afternoon. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good. Uh, I'll just jump to it. Uh, you guys keep on crying like, oh, what the hell's wrong with all these Trump people? Well, the problem is, Right off the bat, um, you, you, you hid the fact that the Hunter Biden laptop existed. Like the media right at the election was saying, oh, there's no such thing. You're all conspiracy theorists. And I remember very distinctly, all of you did it. And then it turned out, oh, hold on. That was actually a lie. They do exist. It did exist. And now you guys are printing emails from it in the newspapers. Or it started even with the weapons of mass destruction that the rest of us are still waiting on. Like, literally a war was created because of uh, how, how Iraq wanted to sell their oil to us. And you All right, Mike, I'm going to keep you. No, I'm not, I'm, I'm not cutting you off because I don't agree with what you're saying. I'm going to cut you off because you're going back in the annals of time a little far. I'm, I'm not quite there on the Iraq war, but let's talk about the Biden thing. There is no doubt that there is some misinformation out there that the media put out when it comes to the Hunter Biden laptop. That I can't disagree with you on. I think that's a fair comment to say. But let's keep our eyes on the prize right now, which is the infatuation with Donald Trump. And, and again, Donald's got his supporters out there. There's no doubt about it. That's fine. To Nathan from Kelowna, we go. Nathan, you think we got a little bit of an inferiority complex? A little bit. We have a massive inferiority complex as a nation. Um, and, and it certainly isn't a criticism toward yourself, but even you... Uh, in your thing, like how does this how does this Trump thing affect us here in Canada? Um, I listen to the news with sort of I guess maybe a different lens than most, um, and I hear a lot of things where people are like, "Oh, Polyev, he's just like Trump. He's just like Trump." So what what does that do? That focuses Canadian media or Canadian citizens down south of the border. Well, how does this affect us? You know, and we're looking for, you know, sort of acknowledgement or recognition in U.S. media, which we've gotten a lot of because of our prime minister and not because of good reasons. But in, in everyday life, Americans don't give a crap what we think. So how does this affect us with Trump? Well, he's the first U.S. president in American history to ever be charged criminally for anything. And I read the Georgia indictment. It's not a big document. Anyone can and should Google it. He's basically being charged with making phone calls four different times, four charges of making phone calls. And this is no different than any other president. So what's the fascination? Well, for, for people like me and, and other people who are curious beyond just pointing the dirty end of the stick, hoping we're not painted with the same brush, they're going after a man who really hasn't been found guilty of anything. And the more they go after him, the bigger it just makes them in the United States. And, all right. And Thank Canada. you for the call. I've got full board, so I wish I could take that all the way through to the end. But, Nathan, I appreciate your time. If we could keep these calls concise, I'll get through as many of them as I can. Listen, I will tell you this. I wasn't saying that I'm trying to compare Trump to Poliev. I'm trying to say that the tactics that have been used by Trump in the States are now being used by politicians in other parts of the world, including here in Canada. And I don't think anybody would disagree with that because, to be honest with you, certain things that Donald Trump does in the media are very, very effective. And why wouldn't? You utilize those. Okay, John from Langley, you uh, have a different perspective on the Donald. 
Well, yes, I do. I think the the sooner the man's wearing an orange jumpsuit, the better. Uh, the, the previous caller mentioned one in- incident uh, down in Georgia, possibly, but there's a lot of other indictments, uh, a multitude of charges. Uh, the man, uh, his discretion, uh, morally, he's very, very challenged uh, uh, in all things. And unfortunately, your second point was uh, how I feel about the Canadian flag. Uh, with that and the leadership of our country, I normally leave it up to Labor Day. But you know what? I got to take it down soon because with the carbon tax and the way that the, the, the current government is leading us with no uh, empathy for the hardships that we're going through, uh, you know, it's steady as it goes, damn the torpedoes. And I hope Trudeau goes down soon. I hope there's a federal election here as well. Thank you. All right, John. Thank you. Timothy from Coquitlam, you're my final call of the segment. You uh, you say sometimes you can't take your eyes off the accident. Am I hearing that right? Uh, not so much that. Sometimes uh, with, with the question here, what the callers are missing is we're not infatuated with him. It's always there. And the interest that is thrown at is that this gentleman's uh, guy has committed so many crimes, whether it's indictments or harassment or whatever, and he gets away with it. He gets away with it. He gets away with it. If we were to do that, absolutely, we'd go to jail just like that. But in, yes, when he gets into his orange suit, if this ever happens, it'll carry on. It will always be there because there's a link to his family, and you'll never hear the end of it. It's an interesting thought, Timothy. Thank you for that. And thank you for all the calls. I got to cut it here because I am up against a hard break here at the bottom of the hour. Um, I think we'll have to bring up this conversation again before it's done. I'm not here being Johnny Politic, but I will say that you have to look at the way that Donald Trump has navigated and worked the media or made it anti-media and seen the tactics used as a part of the reason that everybody is so fixated on the situation south of the border. To me, it's fascinating. And I'm not saying this is Democrat, Republican. I'm not saying this is liberal, conservative. I'm saying this is a guy sitting on the fence that just sits back. And I'm like, this is amazing to me. This is amazing to me that it's all happening in real time, that I'm actually alive, that I was born in the time when this is all unfolding. And you're watching someone manipulate not just one situation, but an entire narrative which I don't think I've ever seen in my lifetime before. So it's really intriguing for me to get your thoughts and your opinion, which is why I will always open up the phone line, even when people are like, oh, don't open up the phone lines. I'm like, nah, man, let's hear what the people got to say. The decriminalization of people who possess certain illegal drugs for personal use, it was thought of to be a critical step in BC's fight against the toxic drug crisis. It was supposed to help reduce barriers. The stigma was helped, uh, you know, Again, it was all there to try and make sure that we didn't just look at it as a criminal justice issue, but we looked at it as a public health matter. So you had a lot of different opinions, public health experts, police, advocates, they were all calling for decriminalization, pointing to a range of potential benefits. To talk about this a little bit more, Jerry Mayer Judson, show contributor. Jerry, good afternoon. Well, good afternoon, Rob. Well, it's been polarizing, to say the least, because I know Mm -hmm. that if you look on social media, you'll see all these, you know, uh, sites, whether it's in Yale Town or downtown, and it just looks like organized chaos and surely decriminalization, quote, isn't working. But 
you've had a chance to talk with Dr. Cora DeBeck, and um, you've got some thoughts on this. No, absolutely. I've, I've noticed, right? So we're like six and a half coming into our seventh month of decriminalization of drugs for personal use this year. And uh, the biggest criticism that I've tend to, that I've tend to have heard, and this is just kind of anecdotally, but uh, that people are still dying from drug toxicity at the same rate. But then maybe we're criticizing the wrong thing. So I did talk to Dr. Cora DeBeck. She is an associate professor at the SFU School of Public Policy and a research scientist within the BC Center for Substance Use. And so I asked her if decriminalization is indeed effective in reducing deaths from overdose. From the outset with decriminalization of personal possession, um, as a scientist and researcher and drug policy expert, I did not expect or anticipate that decriminalization would have any kind of measurable impact on drug overdose deaths. And that is because the overdose deaths are linked to the toxic supply of drugs. So that, based on coroner's data and, and a whole body of research, we know very clearly that it's the toxic supply of drugs that is what is driving overdose deaths and killing people. And with decriminalization of personal possession, we aren't touching the production of drugs. So drugs continue to be produced by organized crime and drug cartels. We have zero health and safety regulations or oversight. So in that context, we expect, unfortunately, that overdose deaths will remain the same. Uh, what decriminalization was positioned to do, is positioned to do, is very small, um, and it really relates to reducing contact between police and people who use drugs. From my perspective, a very evidence-based, sound policy move, but it's really important to be realistic about what it can and can't do. Do we know if there are resources that are being allocated to rehabilitation and other sort of assistance for people who use drugs mm -hmm. in the light mm -hmm. of decriminalization? Certainly decriminalization um, is, is not a magic bullet. It is an mm -hmm. incredibly small um, kind of intervention. So the other types of um, interventions and supports that are needed are improving our, our addiction treatment system of care and, and therapies and support. And the government has announced very significant dollars to advance addiction treatment and ensure that people aren't having to wait, um, do have the type of treatment that they need available on demand. So a lot of effort is going into moving that forward. So we need more absolutely more than addiction treatment. We will not be able to treat our way out of the crisis that we're in. And so some of those other types of, of avenues, certainly prevention and ensuring that we're supporting families, that we're trying to interrupt cycles of historical trauma and the, the kind of colonial violence that we have. Also, though, very importantly, in terms of, you know, every day right now is having low threshold harm reduction programs uh, across the province. So right now we see a lot of them are concentrated in urban areas. So really moving that out, making sure they're available to everybody. From my perspective, the intervention that's going to have the, the largest impact on reducing overdose death is going to be regulating the supply of drugs. And so that's going to involve having government come in and bring in health and safety regulations around the production of drugs. The example I use often is looking at tobacco and looking at how effective we have been in reducing tobacco use, not when we outlawed it, but when we put incredibly strict regulations on purchasing, on the price of them, on packaging, on restricting any type of advertising or anything that goes along with it. With alcohol, we have let advertising come in. We've let promotion. We have mm -hmm. things like happy hour. We're really trying to encourage uh, consumption, which mm -hmm. is absolutely not a public health approach to substance use. So 
So I, I wonder if some people imagine an, an alcohol type model for illicit drugs, which is absolutely not from a public health and evidence-based perspective, something that I would that I would encourage. Just because it is regulated does not mean anyone condones it. You know, it's very much, okay, yeah. well, it's regulated, but at your peril. Yeah, yeah. And we, we have just so many more tools when we bring it under a regulation. And, and it's really another distinction that I think, you know, the public has a hard time making too is that decriminalization is the only alternative to criminalization. Mm -hmm. And decriminalization does not give those regulatory tools. It just says that it's not illegal. Um, And so I I don't actually support just having, you know, decriminalized all aspects of illegal drugs. What we really need is is a regulated system for, for, for drugs. So as uh, as Dr. DeBeck is saying, of course, decriminalization is one good step to prevent um, just harms that come to folks who use drugs um, when they, you know, maybe are just criminalized. Somebody calls the police on them for having a tiny amount of, of drugs for personal use and they're maybe they're using on the street. And I understand that that's probably jarring to look at. And it's not something you know, I, I understand that perspective as well, but it just it, it's a harm reduction technique. And we're nowhere near sort of actually actually done. We can't really see in a public measurable way the results of just decriminalization, although it is a good first step, I would say. Well, it's the first step, but there's obviously work to do, and I'm glad that she was at least open to admitting that. So you know what, Jerry? Great segment. Great insight, and it was really nice to have that perspective on it. And let's circle back on this again. Thank you for the report. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for for letting me talk about it. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.